Welcome back to the Council 36 podcast. We are in February. It is Black History Month. And I have had the honor of interviewing a civil rights activist and a labor activist. So I'm not going to waste any time. Um, We're just going to jump right into the interview. So let's go. Um, Joining me today, I have Reverend James Lawson um, and Lori Condinas. And Reverend Lawson, I'll start with you. You have a very long resume and you played a major role in, you know, in Black history. And, you know, we can just run down a few of them. So, you know, the Freedom Rides, the March on Washington, marching in Selma, um, the sanitation strike in Memphis, just to name a few. Um, And you also taught other, you know, labor and civil rights activists like John Lewis. And a major part of your teachings is nonviolence. So, what kind of made you want to take that path of being nonviolent? Because the world is on the wrong path. The path of violence, racism, sexism, violence, plantation capitalism. That's the wrong path. That's the path that the world is on. As an example, the United States has 6,000 troops, fighting troops, scattered in 43 countries of Africa. Little known reality about our military, the policies of our Congress and Wall Street and our White House. 6,000 troops on the ground, fully armed with all the backup they need in 43 countries. Right. So what kind of future that at does that offer Africa? All of that is in the name of fighting terrorism. Well, Africa has more of a problem with 300, 400 years of colonialism, which has not yet been dismantled. Yep. Their problem is that they have not been able to manage their own tribes and peoples some 400, 500 years, preoccupied with Western occupation. So the world is going wrong. And Mohandas K. Gandhi and Martin Luther King, one of the great historians of the 20th century, uh, Professor Sorokin, have all said, and many other historians and social scientists have joined them in saying that if the world does not change its course, climate chaos is only one issue. If the world does not change its course, it will extinguish our planet and extinguish the human family. I was not aware of that as I began to practice nonviolence, but I've been aware of it now for maybe 60, 70 years. Yeah, and that's, that's, it's very true. And that's also, you know, an amazing, you know, way to think about it, right? If the world is being violent, then you should take the opposite stance in order to right the wrongs, right? And economic violence. 
right. is uh, perhaps the worst form. Yeah. So, Lori, you know, Reverend Lawson has been your mentor and has taught you these things. Um, you know, what do you take away from all that? How has his teachings affected your life? His teachings have affected me in a, in a mighty way. Um, being a young, when I first met Reverend Lawson, I was a young labor activist, you know, full of vigor and yeah, let's get them. <laughs> um, and my first training with him before uh, my first of, I don't know how many arrests, um, he really taught us the, not just the action of nonviolence, <clears throat> but the philosophy of nonviolence. Um, and when you buy into that, uh, it works. I mean, uh, history has shown us. I am a, I'm a, a prodigal of, of his philosophy and his thinkings. And um, I think with that, I've been able to move platforms forward. I've been able to move our people forward um, in a positive way. Right. That's amazing. And so, you know, I want to kind of go back because, you know, part of your resume is the, you know, Tennessee strikes as well. I mean, the Memphis strikes. And it's also a huge part of AFSCME's history, right? So what was the energy like there on the ground with the workers? How were they feeling? And what was that moment like for you? Well, it took um, the 1,300 workers in the public works department or the sanitation department, it took them six years to get themselves organized in a way that they could strike demanding safety, demanding the end of racism in the job, demanding better wage wages and benefits. Because these were men who worked 60, 80 hours a week and lived in poverty. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Like so many workers today mm -hmm. across our country. So uh, when they finally went on strike February 1st, in 1968, there was a massive unity among them. Not only their, their numbers, 1,300, but then they, you know, probably nearly 1,300 families supported them. And in addition to that, they had many pastors because they were many of them were members of congregations in Memphis. So they had many pastors and congregations that were behind their effort to get a little bit of truth and a little bit of change in their status. Uh, so the, when you speak of the energy, well, it was magnificent. Uh, the, there was a spirit of community and unity and a spirit of truth that really possessed us <clears throat> in so many different ways. And it's hard to describe it now, but I, I felt it and saw it, and it strengthened my own life and enhanced my own life just uh, immensely. I remember um, April 3rd mass meeting 
um, where Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was a primary speaker and it was storming uh, uh, a mid-south storm such as never I've never experienced it in in Southern California <laughs> the lightning the thunder the massive gusts of rain and then the steady outpouring from the sky like a faucet's been turned on and anyway so that mass, mass meeting began with that storm going on in the middle of it and yet didn't that, that did not stop several thousand people 98 percent black and the union members and their families from gathering in that mason temple uh, and when Martin got up to speak, Dr. King got up to speak with the thunder hitting the roof and the lightning hitting the roof and the rain hitting the roof and the noise of the fierce wind hitting the roof. Inside that Mason temple, I felt a human community and engagement like I had never felt before. Yeah. With, with all of the circumstance, um, powerful when you ask me energy, well, it's an en energy that I really cannot describe, but which I still remember from that, that movement, from that campaign. Yeah, I can only, be, you know, kind of picture that and I can only kind of compare it to, you know, seeing the marches happening, you know, just this past summer where you had millions of people across the world marching, right? So just feeling that energy is amazing. So I know back then it was probably, you know, amazing as well. And so kind of, you know, speaking of what's happening today, how do you compare it to what was happening back then? Kind of like, the differences and similarities between, you know, the civil rights movement and today's, you know, like Black Lives Matter movement. Well, the DAC, DAC, the Black Lives Matter campaign of night of 2020 is the finest nonviolent campaign that the nation has ever had. It could also well be the most comprehensive and extensive one. And it is a nonviolent campaign that's getting at a critical problem of racial injustice and in fact of male chauvinism, the violence mistreating people through violence. And so uh, there are great similarities. The Black Lives Matter campaign or movement over the last several months is the latest historic part of our long struggle against racism and its economic and violent cruelty. And it's putting on the, it's put on the table something that the nation has not been willing to ever talk about. Namely, if you're going to have a democratic society, how can you have armed people going around the community. Mm. If it's a democratic society, that means how you treat people and what kind of access people have for life is critical. 
Well, our nation, our 50 states, our federal government, our White House, our Congress has, have never considered what does it mean to mold the people into a democratic society where it is felt and seen and heard that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all are created equal and that all are endowed with certain unalienable, uh, inalienable rights. What does that mean? The society doesn't know. And BLM has raised this question now in relationship to police violence as never before. Yes, sir. It's, a, um, it's an evolutionary advance in the agenda that we have been saying to the nation, this is the agenda you as a nation, we as a people must have at the top of our work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've been doing this for a while, right? Um, and so you've seen all of these movements happen, but what are some specific things that you wanna see happen that have not happened yet, right? Things have changed a lot since the 60s, right? But still are not 100% equal by any means. So what are some things that you still wanna see Violence happen? Violence against people has not yet stopped. Absolutely. And, and the violence against black people unarmed men, the drug mm. boys being stopped for minor purposes and then being killed, that has not stopped. The society has even refused to pay attention to it. So I think that is a major issue. But the economic, economic violence where so many folk in the United States are hardworking people and cannot and do not receive the wages essential for their access to life. And where we have financial institutions who are only interested in greed, so building their wealth on the backs of 90% of the American people without any sense of responsibility. Excuse me. So wages for ordinary families in the United States have been, have been decreasing over the last 30 years. So that economic violence must end. Absolutely, I agree. And this is, this is, this is why I'm very passionate about the necessity of working families, working unions, really organizing themselves, because I think that probably we're not going to change this economic violence against this, uh, we the people of the USA, unless we have 50 or 80 million working families in unions all across the country. Yes, sir, Reverend. Yeah. So, Lori, what do, what is your take on that? Like, how, what sort of changes would you like to see? 
Well, you know, the big, uh, the big word nowadays is equity. How, how do we make it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, our people are dying far greater in numbers than others due to COVID. Yeah. Why? Mm -hmm. Inequity. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is my life's passion to keep pushing and keep fighting until I can see some equity. Um, I don't know if I'll live long enough to see full equity, but if, if we can at least bust the door open, you know, uh, we can pass that torch to a better, to, to, our, to uh, the folks coming behind us to a better world. Yeah. And it's sad that I'm like, I may not see that either. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I'm only 28. And that's, you know, that, oh, God, that's disturbing. It's but, tough. Yeah. Well, if we don't see it, we're going to find the growth uh, of the white male-dominated assaults that took place April, the, I mean, January the 6th on the capital of the United States. We're going to mm -hmm. see more of that. I mean, they're wrong, <laughs> but, but their rage has dissipated their compassion and their common sense. Amen. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So for, for both of you, how do you find the strength to keep going? Like, this is a long fight. It's a tiring fight. Um, so how do you find that strength to just, you know, wake up every day and keep, keep fighting? Well, for me, I mean, look at the shoulders that I stand on. If Reverend Lawson can get up and keep fighting, I can surely get up and keep fighting. Um, that's, that's a strong set of, sh of shoulders that I stand on. And he gives, just hearing him, listening to him, seeing him gives me the strength to keep on. Well, that's been my calling, the way in which God has called me through Jesus of Nazareth and to dismantle social, economic, personal wrong and replace it with a little bit of God's purpose and cap compassion. That's my lifelong calling. That's what I know I'm supposed to be about. And so I think being about that is what sustains me. So what kind of advice would you give to young activists like myself and people who are even younger than me? Um, what kind of advice would you give them as they you know, navigate this world? Well, your, your life is a massive gift. It's a singularity of life that is, it is a central piece of life. You have in you all that you need to live and to make life bold and full of character and doing truth. So I think that a part of, a part of endurance is cultivating that life. The Hebrew Bible, Christian Bible, 
both insist that the fundamental law of life is to love God with heart and mind and soul and strength and to love the neighbor as yourself. So I happen to think that's the highest law for good living. To push and cultivate your living that demonstrates you love life and you are nourishing and nursing your heart, your soul, your mind. And you do this in conjunction with the cultivation of your own life as you cultivate the neighbor's life. So that to me has been a primary tool uh, that has um, persistently uh, made me who I am. Lori, do you have any advice? Um, you have to um, be grounded as the good reverend said, um, you know, the Bible tells us to go forth. You know, we're supposed to go and tell it. And we're supposed to help change others. Um, and that's what I've tried to do in my years in the movement. Um, and you have to be steadfast. You have to just plant your feet and you shall not be moved because the struggle will run you over <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> yep. <Very> true. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. There are times where, you know, you see all the headlines, you see all the stories, and it's like mentally just draining, right? Because it's, oh, yes. it's every day, it never ends. And you're just like, when, when will we reach the finish line? And like you said earlier, <laughs> we have no idea. We have no idea. So yeah, just gotta keep pushing, keep fighting for sure. Indeed. Indeed. So, you know, this is our special Black History Month episode. Um, and I think it's important that we teach, you know, different parts of Black history. And I think in schools it's it's very limited. You know, they teach about, you know, Harriet Tubman and MLK, but there are a lot of things out there that we don't know that aren't taught in schools. So for each of you, what's something that's, you know, important in Black history that we may not know about that's not being taught in schools? I'm going to refer to the good reverend because he is a historian like nobody's business. Okay. I yield my time. <laughs> well, uh, I just read a national a piece, um, a piece published nationwide on how Georgia flipped um, the state into the column of two Democratic senators. It could be said earlier that had not, was it not for the um, stealing of the election by the present governor of Georgia, who was secretary of state, hmm. Stacey Abrams would have been the governor of Georgia. She won that election. Say that, Reverend, say but, that. <laughs> but her work, it's her work and the work of a long line of 
people in the black community working for social justice through the political machinery, that that flipping occurred. It was not just the flipping of the last year. It has a four decade or five decade or six decade history behind it. But in this particular piece, the labor element, the union element of that flipping was not there. I happen to know that at least 400 labor activists from the Los Angeles labor movement spent months in Georgia going house to house. How many different unions participated in that house to house campaign to get out the vote and get the vote on the right side of history? I don't know. But in that national piece, there was not a single word about how that took place through persistent work out of the labor unions of our nation. Yes, sir. It was a multiracial, multicredal, multi-labor, intergenerational, intergender. It was a wonderful illustration of what the nation needs in community after community and state after state. And yet this national piece describing it left out. So I would say to you that what is essential for Black, for black History Month is to recognize how black people have for more than a hundred years known that it is by joining together locally in labor unions that working families in the United States have had our greatest advances. That's how social security came about. That's yes, how a minimum wage came about. That's how yes, Medicare came about. Come on, Reverend. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, to me, it's astonishing that we're not given credit for what we have done. And so uh, for, for me, what black history ought to be doing as never before is demanding that the changes that have begun will be pushed forward and become the major agenda. Black history is not about particular people or artifacts or particular dates. It is about the journey towards turning slavery into the beloved community, uh -huh. to eradicating every form of sexism and racism in our society, which slavery demonstrated, and to push the notion that this country under God must become a beloved community. As long as one baby dies in the first year of life, in the United States, Black history ought to be pushing for how our society must dis dismantle the terrible wrong and put our eyes on the prize of equality, liberty, justice, and the beloved community for all. Absolutely. <laughs> that was a great like way to finish the episode that was just amazing. I appreciate that. I thank you so much for joining me. Mm -hmm. um, 
This has been an honor for me. You know, it's not every day that you know I get to meet somebody like you who has who has experienced so much. Um, so I thank you for taking the time to be with me today, as well as you, Lori. You know, even though I see you My all pleasure. the time, <laughs> thank you for being here. I appreciate My you. My pleasure, um, Reverend. I thank you, you, Lori. Uh, thank you, you Reverend. I'm good just fight, the good work. I'm just blessed to hope to see you before too long. <laughs> Indeed. Andy. Yeah. Good to see you. Thank you so much to Lori and Reverend Lawson for joining me today. It was an honor to speak to both of you. And I appreciate you all taking the time to listen. I hope you learned something and got some sort of inspiration. And I appreciate you guys. And I will see you next time.